All right, how y'all doing tonight? All right, my name is Isaac. We hadn't had a chance to meet. Um, I oversee all of our tribes here at Zion City students in regards to middle school, high school, and college ministry, as well as all of our um, creative things for uh, for college ministry. Um, I'm glad you guys are here tonight. Thank you for being here. I know that obviously there's a lot going on right now with graduations and um, there's people who are going on summer vacation. Um, we have a lot of our team right now who is currently, uh, right now they are actually flying from Qatar to Kenya. Um, I believe their flight took off uh, like an hour or two ago. And so we have a bunch, we have 35 people um, who are currently on their way to Kenya to go on a 12-day mission trip. Um, and so they're going to be building churches and spreading the gospel and doing some, like, kids' vacation Bible school stuff. So it's really awesome. So um, if there's people who you think should be here who aren't here, they might be in Kenya. Um, and that is okay. Um, before we get started, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. So, Lord, I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for allowing all of us to come into this place, regardless of circumstances. God, I thank you for um, anyone in this place who didn't want to be here. I pray for those who... Their physical circumstances weren't going to allow them, but Lord, you made a way where there is no way. I thank you for those who maybe even right now as I'm praying this are feeling uncomfortable and awkward, um, and maybe they don't want to be here. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that every single person who's in this room is here for a reason, and I just ask Holy Spirit that you would move in this um, service for the rest of tonight, that you would be with us, you would comfort us, you would guide us, you would convict us, um, and that you would speak through your word, God. Um, we love you. We thank you for your presence in this place. And we just ask that you do what only you can do, God. In your name I pray. Amen. So uh, I am not Pastor Taylor. Pastor Taylor would normally be uh, speaking, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take over tonight while he is in Kenya. Uh, I will say this. When he approached me uh, to speak at this college service, he told me, hey, bro, uh, I asked five other people and they all said no. So you're my sixth choice. And uh, no, he didn't say that. He actually said I was the third choice. So cut it in half. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I love Pastor Taylor, um, and I'm so thankful that he gave me the opportunity to speak here. And honestly, I'm just thankful that he trusts me to be here while he's not here. Um, so while he's gone, we're going to burn down the church. It's going to get super crazy. The ministry is going to fall apart. Um, and we're going to completely change all of our core values and everything. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. When Pastor Taylor listens to this, when he gets back from Kenya, he's going to be stressed out and punch me in the face. And that's okay. So welcome to Zion City College Ministry. Um, I'm going to throw a little shade at my wife. Sorry, Alexis. Uh, she came up and did this prayer moment, and it was really beautiful, and it was really great. But she called us Zion City Young Adult Service, and we're not Zion City Young Adult Service. We're Zion City College Ministry. Oh, come on, it's okay. Uh, but I, I do want to say this. We are not just a service that happens in this building. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the goal of this ministry is for us to eventually be at the U of A and for us to reach college students and to reach the lost. And so... Yes, we are a young adult expression of Zion City, but I do want to remind anyone that's in here, or maybe it's your first time, um, first I want to welcome you, welcome to the family, welcome to Zion City College Ministry. I'm excited that you're here. I hope that you decide to stick around, um, because we have some big things coming up, um, and we believe that the Lord has placed uh, some really big assignments on us for the U of A and for the people who are 18 to 27 within Tucson, Arizona, and I'm really excited for that. Last week, Pastor Taylor hit the three things why Zion City College Ministry exists. And those three things are this, that those far from God would come close to him, that we would build life-giving community, and that we would create leaders. And so last week he talked about that those who are far from God would come to know him. And tonight what I'm gonna talk to you guys about is building life-giving community. 
So if you are taking notes, the title of this message will be Building Life-Giving Community. I do want to say, this is my little tribe plug because I do oversee tribes here. Tribes are our small groups that happen. And some of you in this room have filled out a form the last few months requesting to be a tribe leader. And I want to let you know that we will be reaching out to you if you filled out that form. We have the information. Tribes are just our small groups that are going to meet all across the city. Some are going to be guys groups. Some are going to be girls groups. Some will be co-ed. And these groups exist so that we can have a relationship outside of just a service that happens once a month. Um, And those tribes are coming. We're probably going to launch them in the next couple months. We're currently working on some curriculum and some leadership development for our future tribe leaders. So if you filled out that form saying, hey, I want to be a tribe leader, we saw your form. I have your information. I'm going to be reaching out to you soon. Um, So just hang in there. If you have your Bibles tonight, um, we are going to start tonight in 1 Kings chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. It's going to be on the screen. Um, 1 Kings chapter 3 is not uh, an easy scripture to just turn to. It's not Genesis. I can't just say open up the first book of the Bible. It's not Revelation. I can't just say open up the last book of the Bible. It's kind of that like awkward in the middle of the first half. So good luck finding it. If not, it's going to be on the screen. 1 Kings chapter 3 verses 3 through 14. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in his statutes of his father David. He also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. King Solomon went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask me, what should I give you? And Solomon replied, you have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, Because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity, you have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father, David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, Because you have requested this, and you didn't ask for long life, or riches for yourself, or death over your enemies, but you asked for discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has never been anyone like you before, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Solomon was 20 years old when he became king. His father David was king before him, and Solomon inherited the throne. Like David, Solomon worshiped God, and he only made sacrifices to God and nothing else. Now, see, Solomon didn't ask for riches. He asked for wisdom. He asked for discernment. He asked for the ability to lead the Israelites, to lead God's people. But because of his heart, his heart that said, God, I just want to do what's right. Like, can you imagine if God came to you and asked you, hey, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And that's what Solomon said. He could have said, well, I'm about to be king, so I want victory over my enemies. He could have said, I want to be the richest person in the world. I want to be the best king that there ever was. And instead he said, I just want wisdom and discernment. Help me lead. Help me be a good king. Help me lead your people. Solomon actually ends up becoming the richest and wisest man in human history. To this day, 
no person has ever accumulated the wealth that Solomon had. Based on scripture and what historians have said, and this is like, when you Google this stuff, it's like the world. It's not like Bible.com that's telling you this. Solomon's net worth was over $2.1 trillion by the time he, his reign as king ended. Second place in like world history of richness is John D. Rockefeller. And his net worth was only $663 billion. $663 billion versus $2.1 trillion. He only made it like a quarter of the way. To this day, Elon Musk, his net worth is only $182 million versus $2.1 trillion. The amount of money that Solomon had is literally not even, it doesn't even make sense in our minds. Like our human mind, I can't even process a million dollars. And so amplify that uh, by many times. I'm not going to do the math right now because that's not where my brain is, is to do math. Solomon was so wise that other world leaders would come to him and learn from him and respect him. Not because he asked to be rich or to be the smartest person in the world, but because he asked for wisdom, he asked for discernment and the ability to lead God's people. God gave him the rest because of the condition of his heart. His heart was to worship God and to only worship God. We're going to fast forward in the story to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. And the title of this passage of scripture is called Solomon's Unfaithfulness to God. So we're going to skip ahead to what ends up happening with Solomon. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations above which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, a.k.a. prostitutes, and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, his God, and his father as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. On the hill across from Jerusalem, he did the same for all his foreign wives who were building incense and offering sacrifices to other gods. First off, I just want to acknowledge that Solomon had a thousand wives, which is so buck wild crazy, okay? Um, I used to, when I used to lead um, uh, a high school guy, high school guys group, there were times where I would go and we'd be talking about like, you know, purity and stuff. And I would always tell the guys, I would always reference Solomon who had a thousand wives, and I would always say, like, like, yo, like, that's crazy. Like, Solomon had all the women and, you know, and his life still fell apart and all this stuff. And I would always, like, use it as a story to tell all these high school boys to, like, stop, you know, following after all these girls. But now that I'm married, I, I mean, I love, I love my wife and I, am, I love her. But I cannot imagine her times a thousand, okay? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying my wife drives me crazy because she doesn't. Like, she's awesome. But I know a thousand would drive me crazy. And also, I'm like, how do, like, okay, can you even name a thousand people that you know right now off the top of your head? Like, I would watch uh, Sister Wives on TLC with my family, and I literally would always wonder, like, dude, how does this guy take care of, like, three or four women? Like, how does he know what each of them needs? Like, how does he take care of, like, holidays and birthdays and all that stuff? And I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like for Solomon having a thousand. 
super buck wild, super crazy. I'm thankful that I only have one. So thank you, baby. I, I love you. <clears throat> In all three books of the Bible that Solomon wrote, his common theme is fear of the Lord. Every single book, even Song of Solomon, which is the sex book, he literally talks about fear of the Lord. Like he literally ties it all in at the end and he's like, but above all things, have fear of the Lord. But Solomon's community made him lose his fear of the Lord. In verse four, it says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. This scripture, it was written originally in Hebrew and later translated into English. The Hebrew um, definitions and translations of words uh, is a lot different than English. And Hebrew sometimes has multiple um, translations for a word. And so when they're writing, the tra transcribing the Bible into English, they're like choosing like whichever one works best. But in verse four, when it says his wives turned his heart, that word turned is natah in Hebrew. It means to bend, to stretch out, to bow, to defraud, to deprive, to pervert, and distort. The word heart is labab, which means inner man, mind, will, courage, desire, intelligence, and purpose. So I have three things here of how we can interpret this verse and how we can apply it. And this is not a, like, we're applying it to our modern situation. All the Bible scholars are going to say that's not what the scripture means. This is literally in the Hebrew, the alternate versions and the alternate words you can swap out this phrase. Bad community can bend our purpose. Bad community can pervert our mind. And bad community can distort our intelligence. And that's what happened to Solomon. These places of idol worship that he built and that his, his wives influenced him to build were on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a very historic place um, in the Bible. It was a famous place of Jewish worship. It's where David would go King David, his father, would go to mourn. It's where they would go to celebrate. It's also where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where Jesus eventually goes to pray the week that he's crucified. He goes that week to pray three times before he's crucified. So this is a very important place. The people of Israel practice idol worship at these places that Solomon built for over 300 years after Solomon died. Until later on in 1 Kings, King Josiah finds this old book, which is the law, which is the Bible, which is God's word. And it changes his heart and he brings reformation to Israel. Solomon's decision to worship other gods impacted the entire nation of Israel for 300 years. And made them turn their hearts away from worshiping God and worshiping false idols. All of these idols that is described in this book, when I do some research on it, it's some really crazy stuff. You had a king, Solomon, who said that he loves God and he's only sacrificing to God and worshiping God. And if you look historically, some of those places of worship required child sacrifice, required throwing people off a cliff, required burning people to death, burning the firstborn to death. His heart completely changed. You are influenced by your community, but you also influence your community. So you are not only influenced by the people you're around, but whether you know it or not, you are influencing those who you are around. 
Are you in life-giving community or are you in death-giving community? As I was preparing for this message, um, I found it very difficult because over the last couple weeks, the Lord started dropping these phrases in my heart. And I was honestly finding it very difficult to kind of like put it all together into a sermon because I I was like putting this stuff together and I'm like, dude, this is like a, a sermon series. This is like... This is like a 16-week deep dive. I mean, there's thousands of verses in the Bible about relationship and community and family and friendship and all these different things. And there's so much that we could pull from. But I took some of these phrases that the Lord downloaded into my spirit over the last couple weeks. And some of it also not only comes from just hearing the Lord over the last couple weeks, but also comes from some of my experience with community. I don't know about you guys, but I've been in seasons of good community and I've been in seasons of bad community. Do you ever look back at a good, like, friend group, and you miss it? But then when you look back at, like, the bad friend group, or, like, the person, maybe you don't miss it? I want to talk to you about what life-giving community is. You can write these down or not. Not all of them are going to be on the screen. Life-giving community worships together. What we just did, David started worship and he said, worship is our strategy. Everything that we do, everything that we're able to accomplish, whether that be from God or even stuff that we just feel called to or stuff that we're supposed to do, um, that's going to come from a place of worship. Worship is not just coming up here and raising your hands and singing a song. Worship is the condition of your heart and where your heart is directed. See, when Solomon went to these places to worship, we don't know if he actually went up there and had a harp and a lyre and he went up there and sang and had a choir and all these songs. Most of the time, when it says in the Bible that this person would go up here to to worship, they were offering sacrifices. So they were like killing a calf and burning it. And sometimes there was actual physical worship But the condition of Solomon's heart was to follow after God. Like he said, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Give give me the ability to lead your people. That was his worship. Life-giving community worships together. Life-giving community walks in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we are in life-giving community, we are supposed to follow this. When we all follow this, look at some of those words. Can you imagine how your life might look a little different or specific circumstances that you got yourself into, arguments you got yourself into, times when you got in trouble? If you would have abided and like followed these things, you might have avoided it. So when we are in life-giving community and we are together doing these things, it's a very, very powerful tool. Life-giving community leads each other in the right direction. When we are in community with each other, if we're in a small group of five to six, seven people or less, and someone is like doing something that is so obviously bad or going in the right, wrong direction, it's our job to come in and help them. It's not our job to come in and like judge them and be like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Unless it's 
obvious sin. But how we help people in the right direction and how we lead others in the right direction is we give biblical help, we pray for one another, and we sustain relationship with each other. I can think of specific situations, circumstances, people that I had a relationship with where if there wasn't biblical advice, if there wasn't prayer for one another, um, and if there wasn't deep-rooted relationship, some of those relationships fell. Because some of these things, if you don't want to be in a good, Christian, life-giving relationship, whether that's dating, whether that's friendship, whether it's a small group, whatever it is, the Bible, prayer, and relationship are the glue that is going to hold those relationships together. Life-giving community strives to restore lost sheep to the shepherd. It is our job when we are in life-giving community to help lead others to Christ. For too long, the church has been looked at as this secret, private cult that no one's invited to. And if you identify as this, or if you do this, you are not allowed to step foot now, I'm not going to lie. I haven't seen a lot of churches personally that have actually done that. I do think a big part of that is culturally. I think we've looked at churches, and I think some people have just assumed that churches don't open their doors to certain things. But I have heard stories of people fe feeling judged by others um, and not welcome into a church because of something. Maybe it was sin. Maybe it was the way they looked. Maybe it was the way they talked. And, and that's, not, um, that's not what we're going to do. Um, it's not what we're supposed to do. Life-giving community strives to restore lost sheep to the shepherd. Life-giving community is a voice in the wilderness that prepares the way for Christ, not replaces Christ. I think if you've ever been in a situation like me where you've had the opportunity to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus, and maybe you've been given the opportunity to lead someone else to Jesus, it is very easy to uh, have a, maybe it's a savior's complex. Or maybe it's like, I am the one for this moment. And yes, if you are in a situation where you have the ability to lead someone to Jesus, then that is awesome and you have been chosen for that moment. But you are not Jesus. It is not our job to be Jesus. I've seen way too many people fall. I've seen way too many pastors fall because they were worshiped more than Jesus was worshipped. We are not Jesus. We are called to live like Jesus. And we are called to be like Jesus. But where this comes from is in, in Luke. Mostly Luke chapter 3, uh, where it's called the herald of, of Christ. The herald of the Messiah. And that's John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 through 3 talks a lot about John the Baptist. A couple years ago, back in 2019, there was a time where I read Luke chapter 1. And I felt the Lord tell me to read Luke chapter 1 every single day for three weeks. And I read Luke chapter 1 every day for three weeks, and I walked out of those three weeks being like, wow, I know everything about John the Baptist now. Um, I don't know what this is for. But John the Baptist, it says that he was in the wilderness preparing the way for the Messiah. He was going and telling people to repent of their sins. He was going and telling people to stop being overly religious. He was out in the wilderness doing stuff that no one else wanted to do. And people would come to him and say, hey, how can we be baptized by you? How can we do all these things? And he tells them, there is someone coming who I am not fit to, to untie his sandals. Right. 
and he's referring to Jesus. What John the Baptist was doing was he was preparing the way for Jesus in people's hearts. He was not being their Messiah. He was not being their Savior. He was not being their way to a perfect life. All he was doing is planting seeds, telling them the truth, and preparing the way for what Jesus was eventually going to do in their lives. And that's what we are called to do with other people. That should give you some peace if you've ever been afraid to, I've never led someone to Jesus. If I was out in public and I was wearing like a t-shirt that had Jesus loves you or like a Zion City t-shirt or something and someone asked me what it meant and you like freaked out and don't know what to do, have peace knowing that it's not your job to save that person. It's your job to tell them the truth. It's your job to love them. It's your job to lead them to Jesus, but it's not your job to be Jesus. So that should give you some peace and make it a lot easier. Life-giving relationship or life-giving community creates a long-lasting impact on your generation. When we're in community and we're doing things for the kingdom and we're fulfilling God's law and we're fulfilling God's word, what can stop us? There are things that we can do, things seen and things unseen, relationships, people changing their hearts and turning their lives around, And those are things that can impact an entire generation. Yes, we are called to Tucson. I believe that this ministry is called to the U of A. But the people at the U of A who give their life to Jesus is not just going to have an impact on the U of A. Every single person that gives their life to Jesus has the opportunity to share Jesus with every single person they know, with every single family member, with every single cousin, with every single parent and son and daughter, and you have the ability for the love of Jesus to spread like a wildfire through people that will impact a generation. Life-giving community loves Jesus wholeheartedly more than the things of the world and doesn't bow down to ungodly, immoral things. I wasn't gonna bring this up, but... uh, (laughs) There's a lot of things going on in the world right now. There's a lot of ungodly things going on in the world right now. And I I see on social media, I see people freaking out. I see people freaking out and calling Target demonic and all this stuff. And I'm not saying that they're right or wrong. But what I'm saying is, why are we surprised that the world does not understand Jesus like we do? We tell people all the time, uh, there was a couple years ago, who loves Bill Nye? Bill Nye the science guy? All right, everybody loves Bill Nye. I've never heard someone who doesn't love Bill Nye the science guy. Years ago, when I was a freshman in high school, Bill Nye the science guy had a debate with a Christian scientist named Ken Ham. Ken Ham is the one who built the, um, it's called the Ark Encounter. You've probably seen it. He created a life-size replica of Noah's Ark from the Bible, and he turned it into a museum. And he's a leading Christian scientist, and he had a public debate with Bill Nye about the existence of God. And I'm not gonna lie, Ken Ham lost that debate. The Christian lost the debate to the atheist. And I'm gonna tell you why he lost the debate. He lost the debate because all he did is when Bill Nye would ask him a question, his answer was, well, because the Bible says so, Every single thing. He would say, Bill and I would say, well, do you have proof of this? Or have you ever seen this happen? Or have you ever, or what do you know about this? Or what are your thoughts on this? 
And every single answer Ken Ham deflected with, well, I don't know, but it's in the Bible. That's why he lost that debate. Because he just said it's in the Bible. And he didn't actually provide, like, actual conversation. He didn't have apologetics. He didn't um, say anything else other than that. Um, and he lost that debate really, really bad. And so it's really important that we understand that just telling people that something is in the Bible is not always going to solve it because if they've never read the Bible and they don't understand that the Bible is God's word and is the wholehearted truth, it's not going to make sense. I've also seen people who don't know anything about the Bible be told something in the Bible and that was enough and their heart was changed. But if you're someone who's hard-headed like me, when I was in high school and I had all these Christian people telling me stuff, just saying that it was in the Bible was not enough. I needed an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus. And when I had that encounter with Jesus, then I understood the Bible. That doesn't mean that we don't talk about the Bible. That doesn't mean that we don't hold God's word to an important level. But what it means is we can't always just face all these problems with the world and say, look at all this bad stuff going on. How could they do this? How could they sell this to kids? How could they do all these things? It's because they don't know that it's wrong. Life-giving community loves Jesus wholeheartedly more than the things of the world. And we don't bow down to ungodly, immoral things. We do not swoop low. We don't sit and say, oh, I guess it's okay. Or I don't really know what to do about that. No, these ungodly things that are happening, the sin of the world, we're supposed to reject it. We're supposed to say no. As believers, it's not our job to like be chameleons who, outside of the church, we live ungodly. Because I've seen too many people live ungodly and use it as an excuse of, well, I'm trying to, how else am I going to get them to come to church? You don't need to get drunk with them to get them to go to church. There's other options, I promise. There's other things. I did the same thing when I was a senior in high school. There were times where I would go and I would do bad things with people. And I literally would like do drugs with people. And then when my tribe leader would be like, hey man, I don't know if these people are good for you. And I'm like, yeah, but like I'm trying to invite them to church. They never came to church. Why would they go to church? <laughs> like, why would I say, hey, I'm a Christian. We don't believe in these things. Oh, by the way, I'm going to do these things with you. Hey, you should come to church. Because they immediately see fake. Yep, right. When we are firmly um, planted and rooted in our beliefs and what we believe and why we believe it, people notice those things. Life-giving community worships the God of Abraham who raised Jesus from the dead and only that God who says, I am who I am and no other idols before me. We're not going to be like Solomon in life-giving community. We're not going to worship the things of the world. We're not going to put other things before Jesus because if we do, we're not life-giving community. Life-giving community goes first. You cannot tell others to go somewhere that you have not been. I'm going to be honest with some of you in here. I'm talking about, hey, it's important for us to lead others to Christ. It's important for us to prepare a way. But you are not going to have the ability to go out and tell people things that you don't actually believe because you haven't put it to practice. 
Some of you have scripture engraved in your memory from vacation Bible school and junior Bible quiz or your crazy Christian grandma who always sat there and made you memorize scripture and all this stuff. You, I know so many people who are unsaved who like know things in the Bible. I've met people who are unsaved who know more about the Bible than saved people. That's a problem. You cannot tell people to go somewhere that you have not been. So if you want to be a part of life-giving community and you want other people to be a part of life-giving community and you want other people to know Jesus and you want other people to follow God's word and be in relationship and worship and have encounters with God and do all these things, are you willing to do it first? Are you willing to lead the way? Life-giving community lives free and fights for each other's freedom. There is safety, transparency, and vulnerability in life-giving community. Whenever I have been a part of a small group, a tribe, something of that nature, there's never been a time when I have felt afraid to share information or I feel like I have to withhold information. Because out in the world, I think it's okay to sometimes have our guard up and feel like maybe people don't have the best intentions. And maybe people aren't going to keep my information um, to themselves. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. doesn't always stay in Vegas. And so it's possible for people within Christian community to not do those things, but they shouldn't. And so this is why I'm telling you what life-giving community should be. I'm not saying this is how it always is, but life-giving community should be a safe place where we can talk about our struggles and we can have vulnerability with people who care about us and pray for us and want us to live free. And for those of us that do have freedom in areas, when we're in community with someone who's going through something that we went through, it's our duty to help them go through that. If I see someone who's struggling with the same things that I've struggled with, I'm doing them um, a disfavor if I'm in life-giving community with them and I don't share my testimony or I don't share how they can get out of it or I don't share what God did in me. Life-giving community discerns the heart of God and knows his word. I don't think I really have to explain this one. Uh, I think for too long, um, I personally have been in a, uh, a place like this where pastors have been in a place and we've tried to sit and convince people to read their Bible more and here's why. I think it's just something that I think um, we can all agree on. Like, I don't think any of us in this room or anyone that's saved would tell you like, no, you shouldn't read God's word. But where it becomes a problem is we actually just have trouble doing it and practicing it. So I'm not going to sit in here and tell you why you should be in God's word. But I'm going to hopefully tell you how you can, like, how I can help you be in God's word. And that's done in life-giving community. When you are with people who are holding you accountable, holding you higher, it's a lot harder to be, um, let's just say this. If I see someone um, and I see the way that they talk about things 
or I have conversations with them about, hey, what are your thoughts on this? Or, hey, what's the Lord speaking to you? Or what's going on? Judging by that answer and how they respond, I can probably sit and tell that, oh, this person like really loves Jesus. This person really knows God's word. And then there might be some people who you know, okay, maybe this person doesn't. And it's our job in life-giving community to be in God's word because it's important and to be in God's word with other people. There's an accountability when you are in God's word with someone else or with a group of people. When you're in a small group or a Bible study that decides to dive in. I used to go with a bunch of high school guys and one time uh, we'd go to Starbucks. I remember one time I had one week where 15 high school dudes showed up and we're in this Starbucks and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be rough. So we chose this like awkward little corner <laughs> of the Starbucks and multiple times during that night, um, people came and told us that we were like being too loud. And I had these, this group of 15 high school guys and I said, all right guys, tonight we're doing a deep dive on Psalm 91. And they were just like, they, they did not look super excited. Um, but I felt like it was important. And I remember that was a, a pivotal moment in my high school guys tribe, where after that, these types of Bible studies became a part of our regular routine and our regular practice. And um, there was a, a span of about six or seven months where every single month we would dedicate a Saturday out of the month to focus on reading a challenging scripture or challenging chapter in the Bible together. And from that, I saw the fruit of these high school boys who go to school where no one else reads their Bible and no one is telling them to read their Bible. And they could be playing Fortnite or doing all these things, playing video games, playing sports. But I saw the fruit of people in that group who from us just coming together and reading God's word, they started applying it to their own life. So if you are having trouble being in God's word, reading the Bible, I would encourage you to be a part of life-giving community because it creates more opportunity um, for you to do that. And there's an accountability. Life-giving community isn't afraid of confrontation, embraces uncomfortable conversation, and rejects all forms of shame. Life-giving community does not sit here and um, shame you when you show up late to service. Life-giving community doesn't shame you and say, why did you only come to church three Sundays last month and not four? Where were you that last four, Johnny? Where were you that last week? It's not our job. We're not gonna sit here and tell people, how dare you do that? Why would you do that? When we have healthy confrontation in life-giving community, it is so much easier to approach someone who you love and trusts you and has vulnerability with you. And when you say, hey man, I noticed that you weren't at this or I noticed that you didn't do this or you said you were gonna start doing this, but you didn't. Like, can I help you? Or like, how can I walk you through that? Or, and there's, a, there's less chance of the person being all of a sudden like, why are you coming at me? Why are you coming at my throat? Why are you fighting me? Because when we approach these situations, not coming from a place of shame and saying, well, I'm better than you because I did this. I'm better than you, David. You didn't come to this thing, but I did. We said as a tribe that we were gonna go do this event and you didn't show up. How dare you? That is shame. That is what life-giving community does not do. Life-giving community goes, David, what's up, dude? Like, how you been? Hey, man, uh, were you, well, you were gonna go to that thing, right? Oh, hey, man, something happened. My family was in town. My phone broke, whatever. Oh, 
Totally understandable. It's okay. Love you, bro. Like, that situation can be handled two different ways. And one of them is significantly better than the other. And I don't think I need to explain which one. Um, and keys can make their way up. How do we participate in life-giving community? I've sat here and I've told you what life-giving community isn't. I've told you what life-giving community is. And I will say this. That list of stuff that I just listed off, there is so much more than that. Open the Bible. Read the book of Acts. Go and see what life-giving community looks like. Because I could sit here for hours and list off biblically what life-giving community is. But I specifically chose some of the things that I think are impactful for this ministry specifically and for us moving forward. How do we participate in life-giving community? We have to choose life-giving community. I'm not going to sit here and tell you the pros and cons of being in life-giving community. I'm not going to sit here and give you a a 12-step program on how to be in life-giving community. I'm not going to have you sit and check off some boxes. When it comes down to it, the way we participate in life-giving community is we just choose it. Life-giving community does not come to you. You can't just sit around and wait. I've seen too many people for so long, especially in the church, who leave a church or leave a ministry because they feel lonely. And that is a valid thing. But if you never sought out relationship and you didn't even try, then you're not allowed to make that excuse because life-giving community does not come to you. You can't sit here in a service and all of a sudden, all these people just swarm you and they immediately just include you into the group chat. That's not how that works. Life-giving community does not come to you. We have to choose life-giving community. But sometimes it is hard to choose life-giving community. Even while preparing for this message, there are parts um, that almost brought a conviction because I looked back at times when I have struggled to be in life-giving community. I remember when Alexis and I were engaged, I thought, man, when we get married, it's going to be so easy to like have friends over all the time and like always hang out with people. And I, I look back, and I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking um, because when we got married, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, it is way easier to stay at home and be with each other, and love on one another, and be in our pajamas by 8 p.m. It is way easier to do that uh, than to choose community. And so there have been many times where Alexis and I have had to force ourselves to be like, no, we need to invite these people over. We need to go hang out with people and not just be hermits sitting in our living room every single day. There's more to life than that. Distractions, busyness, schedules, can be difficult in making new relationships. Isolation is a coping mechanism and can sometimes be a response to trauma. I'm not gonna sit here and say that if you're not in life-giving community, it's only because you're lazy or you haven't tried. There is a real thing where being in bad community can leave a bad taste in your mouth and you don't wanna be in another community. You don't even wanna give another community a chance. You don't wanna give a friendship or a small group a chance because of what happened in the past. And that could have came from a bad experience. It could have come from something really, really bad, some trauma that's left some super crazy impactful stuff in you. But isolation is never the answer. 
There's opportunity for community everywhere. You being in this room right now, sitting in these ugly brown chairs, is an opportunity for community. I don't know why I just threw shade at the chairs. Like, they never did anything to me. <laughs> they never did anything to me. I'm just, I don't know. I just, that's what I chose to say. Every time you're with people, every time you come to a service like this, every time you're talking with someone in the lobby, every single time that you're getting coffee, every time that you bump into a stranger and you have conversation with them, it doesn't mean it's gonna be life-giving community, but there's opportunity for life-giving community. The opportunity is everywhere. I wanna go back and hit some of these, these two points real quick about bringing other people into life-giving community. I said that life-giving community strives to restore lost sheep to the shepherd. And that life-giving community is a voice in the wilderness that prepares the way for Christ and not replaces Christ. Uh, my dad didn't come to church for over, uh, I did the math based on what he told me, and I think it was like 20-something years. He hadn't been to church since I was a little kid, essentially. Since I was like three years old. Um, so maybe over 20 years. And when I first gave my life to Jesus, about six and a half years ago, or seven years ago now, I had a burden to bring my dad to Jesus because my dad was always going through all these different things and having all these problems. And I don't know about you, but if you had a moment when you got saved and all of a sudden you're like, oh, you see all these people that aren't saved and you're like, they need to be saved too. And I remember it was a, it was a very important thing to me. And for years, for six years, it was a constant prayer to God that my dad would find Jesus and that my dad would come to church. And we'd be in the prayer center here at the church from midnight to 2 a.m. crying out for the lost. And we'd be on this little crappy sound system with a horrible microphone. There'd be like 40 of us in this room. And we'd all just be like, sh just randomly shouting names of people we know who need to find Jesus. And the go-to person who I always prayed for was my dad. And finally, last year, I did the thing that like everyone does and you like start inviting people to Easter. And so I invited my dad to Easter knowing that he would probably say no. And he said yes. And he came to church and it was such a crazy moment. It was surreal. It's like it didn't even like, like it didn't feel real. I'm sitting in the 1130 service here at church last year at Easter. And I'm sitting there in service, worshiping. And I have this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm in church worshiping and my dad is right next to me. I prayed for him for years to come to church. And I was like, why am I not excited in this moment? Like it was almost kind of scary. And I remember the person that was hosting the service, the campus pastor made a really corny joke. And I remember I was so disappointed. I'm like, oh my gosh. My dad is not, never coming back to church because of this dumb joke. Like I started in my mind, I'm like, oh, like is, is the worship music cool enough for him? I started like thinking through all these things. And I remember I had a moment where I, I'm like sitting there just like with my dad at church and like hope this goes well. And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, your dad needs your worship. And it was crazy. I like, and I started crying. 
I'm like, oh man, now my dad's gonna see me crying. It's just like it just it just kept getting worse and worse, and just like, oh, this whole situation is so bad. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but like sometimes when you're not feeling it and you gotta worship, or if you're ever like been in a situation where you're worshiping next to someone who like you know it's just I'm sitting next to someone that's not saved. I'm sitting next to my dad who I'm afraid that he's gonna think I'm weird, and all of a sudden I'm like jumping up and down in worship, and it, it I start like worshiping and praying in tongues and all this crazy stuff. And at this point, I'm like, all right, well, like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it. And if, if it works, it works. And my dad still, to this day, a year later, has not made the choice to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. But him coming to church that one time started something. And from that moment forward, the conversations that my dad and I have had about God, about the Bible, have only opened up. And I'm still believing for him to come to Jesus. But what I'm saying is our ability to talk with people who don't know Jesus and to bring them into the community and lead them to Jesus is so insanely important. And it's going to take time. And it might be hard. And it might be weird. And you might look like the outsider. And you might look like the Bible-thumping weirdo. And that is okay. Some of you in this room have a call on your life an uh, evangelistic nature, I like to call it. Not all of us in this room have the ability to just go out downtown and start praying for homeless people. If you've never done that, I recommend doing it. But there are some people, because it'll take you out of your comfort zone, but there are some people in this room who feel called to do that. You find joy in going out and finding people who've never met Jesus. You find joy in the awkward conversations and having people screaming at you and cussing at you. And I wanna encourage you, if you feel that, to do that. Some of you need to seek the lost, but some of you, the lost will just come to you. So be ready. The amount of conversations I've had with people where I wasn't expecting to talk about Jesus out in public, like where I'm at the grocery store and I realize, oh, I wore that shirt that the church made that says like, whatever has been lost, he will restore on the back. And it's like bright yellow. And then like people ask me a question, I have to explain what it means. But I'm just here to get bagels at seven o'clock in the morning at Bashes. And I'm like not wearing socks with my shoes because I just woke up and I'm wearing like sweatpants and a t-shirt. And like, I still got like sand in my eyes and it's just like really rough. And I'm like, I am, this is not the place to have this conversation. But someone asked, hey, what does that shirt mean? You gotta be ready. Luke 5, 27, this is my final verse for tonight. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. When Jesus called the 12 disciples, he was asking them to choose life-giving community and proximity to him. Are you willing to do that? And if the band wants to make their way up, are you willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus and to be a part of life-giving community? Are you okay with embracing awkward conversations sometimes? Are you okay with getting out of your comfort zone and talking to people at service that you normally wouldn't talk to? Are you okay with coming into service and sitting in a chair that you don't normally sit in? 
are you okay with being out in public? When we have services at the U of A, and we have people who absolutely hate Jesus and hate the Bible and are purposefully there to cause chaos and to show up to tell us to our face that the God that we pray to and we worship to, we don't believe in. He isn't real. Are you willing to have those conversations? Are you willing to defend your faith? And for some of you in this place, maybe your relationship with Jesus isn't sturdy. There might be someone in this room who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus or doesn't have a relationship with Jesus like they used to. Like Levi, the tax collector, to Jesus. All Jesus had to do was say, follow me. And Levi, with a successful career in tax collecting, which at that time, the tax collectors were like super, super corrupt and taking people's money. That's why, that's why it says that he was a tax collector because everyone hated tax collectors. This dude was obviously balling. He obviously had money. And Jesus said, are you willing to leave everything behind and follow me? And Levi follows Jesus and is now in this ragtag group of 12 people who are with Jesus all the time and are making an impact in the world, life-giving community. So with all heads bowed and all eyes closed in this place, with no one looking around, I just wanna give an opportunity. If there's anyone in this place where you say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, or I used to have a relationship with Jesus, and I've walked away from it, I've had trouble believing in him, I've had trouble putting my faith in him, or you've never put your faith in Jesus, and you'd like to make that decision today with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, if you just raise your hand for me. I see that hand, thank you. What we're gonna do is all together, we're gonna say this prayer together and we're gonna believe in faith. So if you'd repeat this after me, say, dear Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you did on the cross for me. I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to lay everything behind and follow you wholeheartedly to worship you and only you. You love me, Jesus. And because of that, I choose to love you too. And in your name I pray, amen. Can we just give a round of applause for the people in this room that just made that decision. You just made the best decision uh, you've ever made. But I'm gonna tell you, it's just the beginning. You making that decision is just the first step. And I'm proud of you for making that decision and raising your hand and saying that prayer. But now you have to walk some things out. The second thing I'm gonna do, and this is gonna be a part that's a little bold, but I'm gonna ask for anyone in this place who feels like they have struggled being in life-giving community. They've struggled being in good, biblical, life-giving community. They've struggled to find friends. They've struggled to be around other people. Maybe you've struggled with being in the world and you come to church, but all your friends aren't and you're stuck and you feel like you're not going anywhere, you're not leading them to Jesus, you're not inviting them to church. You feel like you overall 
struggle to be in good, healthy, biblical, life-giving community, I'm just gonna simply ask you to stand up. Not awkward. It's not a weird thing, just being honest. Like, yeah, I struggle with being in a life-giving community. I appreciate you guys standing up. It means a lot. It's bold. I believe that when we do things in the natural that God responds in the supernatural. And I think the even the obedience and the stirring of going like, you know what? Sometimes I struggle with being a life-giving community and that's okay. The good thing is it's not just one of you standing up. So it's not awkward and you're not an odd one out. So what I wanna do is I just wanna pray um, a blessing over you who, who feel that struggle. And if you are not standing up, if you would just, in your place, just just pray with me. Um, and maybe even, you don't have to lay hands, but just just kind of choose a person and just, and just pray for them whether you know their name or not. God, I thank you for all of these people who are standing up right now. Lord, I thank you for their willingness and their obedience to be honest. And God, I ask that you would help them find life-giving community. You would help them find um, people who love Jesus, who care about Jesus, who, and who care about them. Lord, we believe that we are seen, we are known, and we are loved by you, but we are also seen and known and loved by others. And for these who don't feel that, I ask God that you would supernaturally bring people into their life, that you would bring them into relationship, whether that is with people in this room or outside this room. I ask, Lord, that you would be with them, you would comfort them, and God, you would bring the right people. And maybe even right now, while I'm praying, they feel like they know the people or they know the person, or they know the group, or they know what they need to do. And God, I ask that you would give them the strength and the courage and the steadfastness to pursue those relationships and to pursue those people. God, you have called us to life-giving community, and that is how we are gonna sustain relationship with each other, not only in this room, but at the U of A. It's how we're gonna bring people into your kingdom, and it's how we are going to walk with each other and love each other. So I lift up this group of people right now. And Holy Spirit, right now, would you touch their hearts, minister to the deepest, darkest places of their hearts. And we acknowledge the hurt and the pain and the loneliness. And God, we ask that you would bring supernatural comfort and you would bring people, the right people. I pray your will over every single person that's standing up right now and that you would bring the exact people, the exact community that they need for what they are currently going through. We say loneliness, no more. Isolation, no more. No tactic of the enemy will prevail against these people, but that they will be wholeheartedly following after you in relationship with people who are also following after you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.